0: cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot slash join. Welcome to the Science Podcast for April 12th, 2019. I'm Sarah Krusty. In this week's show, I talk with contributing correspondent Lizzie Wade about a new hominin species, something like a Denisovan or a Neanderthal, but this is new and very, very small, smaller than the so-called Hobbit hominin. And Megan Cantwell talks with Florian Schistel about observing real-time evolutionary change in flowering plants. First up, we have Lizzie Wade. She's back on the show this week to talk about a previously undescribed type of ancient hominin. Hominins are things like Denisovans, Neanderthals, Homo floresiensis. These are close cousins of modern humans that have not survived into modern times, except as bones and small bits of DNA integrated into our genomes. Hi, Lizzie. Hi, Sarah. So I'm really excited about more hominins. Um, This find is actually based on bones from the Philippines. What exactly was found and where were they found? They have been excavating in a cave on the island of
1: Luzon in the Philippines for a long time. And Luzon is the biggest island in the Philippines. It's where Manila is. The cave is called Callao Cave. And they found quite a few fossils from what looks like a very unique kind of human. This paper is based on some teeth some finger bones, and some toe bones, mostly. They also have one kind of broken leg bone from, they can tell that it was kind of a growing juvenile, so kind of an adolescent during the, the years when you grow to your adult size. The bone isn't complete, so they can't tell how how tall the species was.
0: Right. And that's a really good segue into what can we tell about them from teeth, hands, feet, and part of a leg bone? On the one hand,
1: Not as much as scientists would like. And on the other hand, kind of a lot. (laughs) Um, First of all, the bones were found in layers that have been dated to 67,000 years ago and 50,000 years ago. So this may or may not overlap with Homo sapiens on that island. They don't have any evidence of Homo sapiens in that cave, but this is around when Homo sapiens were were around Southeast Asia at this point. So first the teeth, they have like the upper right jaw of one individual, which is pretty cool. So you can see the ratio between different kinds of teeth. You have molars and then the somewhat smaller teeth in Homo sapiens right before your molars are called premolars. And so in this species, Population, the premolars are kind of the same size as Homo sapien premolars, but the molars are like really, really small. Like they're smaller than Homo floresiensis, even, which is a really small human. <laughs> like that's sort of that's why they call it the hobbit. It was like three feet tall. These molars, particularly, are even smaller than the hobbit's molars. And that's like suggestive that this person also may have been quite small, although they can't say that for sure.
0: Yeah. I was going to say the teeth may not be the best marker of general size, right?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it would be much better to have like a full leg bone or a full arm bone. That would tell you a lot more, but teeth do generally correlate to body size, but it's suggestive, but not conclusive as usual.
0: Okay. And hands, hands and feet, that might tell you something about what they did or what they were good at or those kinds of things.
1: Yeah. So the hands and feet are also really interesting. So they particularly have fingers and toes, like pieces of them. The fingers and toes were both quite long and curved. That's something that's quite unusual in the Homo genus. It's very similar to to Australopithecus, which is Lucy, who's from Ethiopia three million years ago or whatever. This has sort of been interpreted as like kind of a midpoint between chimpanzee feet and hands and Human feet and hands.
0: Unexpected to see so much later.
1: Very, very unexpected to see 50,000 years ago. Like a lot of time has passed. So that, you know, it raises a lot of questions about who their direct ancestors might have been. Obviously, curved toes and fingers are usually interpreted to be really good for climbing trees. So there doesn't seem to be a lot of question that Homo was bipedal in some way, but it may have also been very good at climbing trees still, or, you know, whether that that trait survived or evolved again on this island. There's another really weird thing about one of its toes, the third toe, where it connects to the foot on all other Homo species. That part is really strong and it's quite flat. And it's like what gives you a lot of propulsion when you're walking upright. Everyone has this, all the homos have it. And this one doesn't. Its toe looks really, really different. And nobody knows what that might mean. Nobody knows what it might do. Nobody knows why,
0: but it's very unusual. That's really interesting. So as you mentioned, this is about, these are about 50,000 to 67,000 years ago. Homo sapiens might have been around and Homo floresiensis, which was found in Indonesia. They were also around at the same time. So, how do we know that it's not one of those? How do we know this is a different species? Yes, yeah,
1: so the fingers and toes look somewhat similar to Homo floresiensis, they also have kind of these curved fingers and toes, but the teeth really do look different. So, it doesn't seem to be Homo floresiensis and another, you know, possibility if you're finding kind of an unknown human species in Southeast Asia would be the Denisovans, for whom we have very, very few fossils as yeah. well. But we do have teeth for the Denise Vans, and they have really gigantic teeth. Huh. So this seems and this species has really small teeth. So that seems to be pretty obvious that they're not related.
0: And it's very sad that there is no ancient DNA in this paper. Does that is there likely to be any ancient DNA from bones from these teeth? They tried to extract ancient DNA and they couldn't.
1: They didn't find any. This deposit in the cave. I mean, it's in tropical Southeast Asia, it's very hot, it's very humid. The particular kind of layers in which these bones were in, the dirt was like really wet. And so like, this is really terrible situation for DNA preservation. Yeah. So it's possible they'll find other fossils in this cave or elsewhere that will be in slightly better conditions or it's possible, you know, our ancient dna techniques will get a lot better, which they are, you know, they are getting a lot better. Right. So, you know, I wouldn't rule out ever having into DNA from the species, but it wasn't particularly surprising that they don't have it now.
0: How does this find fit into this trend of finding more kinds of humans than we knew what were around before? And how does this fit in with the overall understanding of human migration? Yeah,
1: that's sort of a million dollar question, of course. But you know, one thing that it definitely shows is that the human story, the story of our ancestors is so much more complicated than we ever thought even 10 or 15 years ago like the amount of discoveries in the last literally 10 years about yeah. all the species of ancient humans that were all kind of living at the same time in the Pleistocene is like truly wild. <laughs> it was so, so unexpected and it just keeps happening over and over again. This will definitely not be the last new human ancestor that gets discovered or you know, new human species. It also shows that something very interesting is going on in Southeast Asia which, you know, Homo floresiensis also obviously suggested. And that's not entirely surprising because there are thousands of islands in this region. And when animals of all kinds get isolated on islands, some very strange things can start to happen to them. They can get really big, they can get really small. That's what seems to have happened with Homo floresensis and possibly with Homo lucinensis too. Clearly something is happening on the islands of Southeast Asia for ancient human evolution and it looks like we're just scratching the surface of all of that.
0: Okay, Lizzie, thank you so much.: Thanks, Sarah. Lizzie Wade is a contributing correspondent for science. You can find a link to this story and others mentioned on the podcast at sciencemag.org/podcasts. Stay tuned for Megan Cantwell's interview with Florian Schiestel about observing real-time evolutionary change in flowering plants This week's episode is brought to you in part by CollabTree, the world's largest freelancing platform for scientists and researchers. Have you ever needed a statistician, a physicist, or simply a manuscript editor on short notice? CollabTree can help. Businesses and academics have hired from among 7,500 experts on CollabTree to design clinical trials, write policy reports, and make sense of large data sets. The freelancers on CollabTree are highly specialized and experienced with qualifications from top institutions like MIT, Harvard, Johns Hopkins, Oxford, and more. You can post your project for free on CollabTree and start receiving quotes from these experts within 24 hours. Want to see for yourself? Check out their numerous success stories from projects like predicting sales data to optimizing the consistency of ice cream. I see here that there's a collaboration for formulating a material to prevent microbial growth. So there's both analysis as well as small research projects. Best of all, as a Science Podcast listener, you'll get an exclusive $100 credit toward your first project. Simply visit collabtree.com. That's K O L A B. T-R-E-E dot com slash science mag or enter the code science mag when you create your project. That's collabtree dot com slash science mag. Collabtree, the world's largest freelancing platform for scientists and researchers. This week's episode is also brought to you in part by Magellan TV. Magellan TV is a new type of documentary streaming provider determined to bring you the finest documentaries from around the globe. Magellan TV is built by documentary filmmakers and new programs are added on a weekly basis. They offer documentary movies, series, and playlists across a wide variety of genres, space, science, history, nature, engineering, physics, evolution, health, biology, and more. They have the deepest collection of high quality science programs available anywhere. They even have these playlists that are curated specifically for science enthusiasts. Watch anytime, anywhere, on your TV, your laptop, or your mobile device. That way it can look over your shoulder on the Metro. Enjoy a wide selection of programs available in 4K without additional cost. And stream them without interruptions. Magellan TV is now compatible with Roku, iOS, and Android, with the ability to cast to most popular streaming devices. Start your exclusive two-month free trial today at MagellanTV.com slash Science Magazine. That's MagellanTV.com slash Science Magazine.
2: Flowering plants evolve their petals, fragrance, and more to attract pollinators. But herbivores, animals that feed on plants, also play a role in shaping evolution. Mainstream research is focused on studying the impact of herbivory and pollinators in isolation from each other. But I'm here with Florian Schistel to talk about his research, which observed the real-time evolution of floral traits in response to pressures from both herbivores and pollinators. Thanks so much for joining me, Florian.
3: Sure, you're welcome. My pleasure.
2: Why is experimentation the best way to go to evaluate this question of how plants respond to both herbivory and pollinators?
3: The mainstream research has looked at pollination and herbivory in a separate way. That's right. But since about 20 years, people have acknowledged that it's important to study these things together. But the the novelty of our research is that it it studies the two factors in an experimental evolution approach. We really look at the, the evolutionary impact in real time of these two factors.
2: So, studies before had been pretty theoretical in studying both the impact of herbivory and pollination together.
3: Well, not just theoretically, but more on a sort of single generation basis. If so have looked at the ecological effect in one plant generation, let's say, or well, they've studied the physiology of the two effects together. But they've never followed it up over multiple generations, and looked how the the factors changed the evolutionary fate of the plants.
2: Experimental evolution is such a cool term that I wasn't familiar with before I read this research, and it's amazing that it can be tested in the lab. How did you choose which plant would be ideal to use in this situation?
3: Yeah, that's a relatively simple choice because in experimental evolution, the length of the experiment is determined by the generation time of the organisms that you use. So typically experimental evolution has been done with microbes, for example. Plants typically have a much longer generation time. And that's, of course, is a greatly constraining factor in experimental evolution because you cannot have a PhD student for 10 years, (laughs) obviously. So my choice was Brassica Rapa, where fast cycling genotypes are available. They have been developed by Paul Williams at Wisconsin University about um, 20 years ago. We have adopted these plans for experimental evolution. And with those plans, you can really do four generations in a year. And so in three years, you can theoretically do 12th generation. That's about what a PhD student can do. And it is enough to show evolutionary effects. So it worked out very nicely.
2: What traits were you studying within this plant to look at evolutionary change?
3: We looked at the most complete set of traits that we could do. We did floral morphology. we looked at the size of the petals, the size of the sexual organs, uh, the stamen, the pistils. Then we looked at the nectar, uh, the amount of nectar, the chemistry of the nectar. Then the signals that the plants produce, so the color and the fragrance. And then we looked at defense compounds. So that's in all Brassicaceae, the defense compounds are glucosinolates. So these are specific group of compounds that have a toxic effect on, on herbivores. And uh, we analyzed those chemically as well.
2: Could you walk through how you tested the impact of pollinators and herbivores on the evolution of these traits you mentioned?
3: We let the, the herbivores feed on the plants for a given number of days. And then we applied the bees. So we we released the bees in a cage with the plants inside and the bees were allowed to pollinate a given number of plants and control groups were hand pollinated. And then the seeds were, were let germinate and then they were harvested. And then for the next generation, each plant contributed with an equivalent number of seeds. So it was equivalent to its total number of produced seeds. The more seeds a plant produces the more it's represented, the more its genotype is represented in next generation. So that was uh, continued throughout the whole experiment, essentially six times until the finishing of the experiment.
2: What differences did you observe through the independent impact of herbivory and pollination selection?
3: Bee pollination led always to the evolution of more fragrant and more larger flowers because the bees always select for stronger floral signals. So they visit those flowers more, and then that leads to the subsequent enhancement of these traits. This is compared to the hand pollinated uh, plants, which do not show this uh, evolutionary change. With herbivory, herbivory leads to an increase of defense mechanisms. In our cases, we measured the toxic defense compounds, these are the glucosinolates. They were increased in the plants, all the plants that had herbivory during the experiment. Herbivory alone changed the morphology of the flower in a way that the sexual organs came closer to each other. So normally, sexual organs are separated, and this separation prevents or reduces the normally detrimental, deposition position of self-pollen on the self-stigma. Now, with herbivory, this was decreased, and the plants developed an ability to more self-pollinate. So the own pollen became more compatible on their own stigma. Normally, it's not compatible and does not germinate. But that changed throughout the evolution and plants became more self-compatible. Such a strong link between herbivory and the mating system. I did not expect to see this in in such a short time.
2: And what about the differences from the combined effect of both herbivory and pollination selection on the plant?
3: So, So the combined effect is not the sum of the effect of each individual factor, but it is something different. It's something new. For example, just herbivory increased certain defense compounds. But this was not the case. The plants had also bee pollination. This kind of changed the effect. It was not necessarily the compounds were increased in that case. Or another example is that the plants changed their mating system and increased their mode of self-pollination. They did more self-pollination as compared to the other plants. This was quite unexpected and could not be predicted by the individual factors.
2: You mentioned that the outcome from herbivory and pollinator selection isn't additive. The result of pollination and herbivory on the evolution of floral traits, why is it that plants can't just evolve both?
3: So it's a kind of an allocation thing. Plants have to kind of decide, so to say, in their development where they allocate their resources. For example, they can allocate resources to the fence or they can allocate resources to large flowers. So this is something... The plants, they do it in an evolutionary programmed way. And this program can change in the course of evolution. And the second thing is that uh, selection, so the the external force that drives evolution, is impacted by the factors in an unpredictable way. So selection changes if one factor comes to the other. If two factors can work together, then selection takes a sort of an, an unpredictable value.
2: How do you think these findings will impact how experimental evolution studies are conducted in the future?
3: I'm pretty convinced that more people will try now to use uh, experimental evolution with real plants in a semi-natural environment as possible as it can be with, with few insects in the greenhouse, obviously. But people use kind of artificial selection so that they manually select so that the experimenter makes the choice. But in our experiment, it was actually the bees that uh, made the selection. And this is a major difference because it can tell you something about uh, a more natural phenomenon, namely the pollinator making the selection. I think this is uh, the way to go to study a more natural kind of scenario for evolution or experimental evolution and make more realistic predictions about what's really happening outside in nature.
2: Right. And with climate change definitely impacting where these plants can survive, this has the potential to maybe tell you where things will be going in the future.
3: Definitely. And I also think that an evolutionary aspect should be more incorporated in sort of conservation questions or questions about sustainability of populations, whether plants will survive in in terms of environmental change. Often evolution is not taken into consideration. I think it should be more done so because our study also showed that evolution can be very rapid and very quick. And plants have an amazing ability to adapt to changing environmental parameters.
2: Thank you so much.
3: Sure.
2: Florian Schistel is a professor in evolutionary botany at the University of Zurich in Switzerland. You can find a link to his research at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. And
0: that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at Podcast at aaas Just a heads up, Megan and I will be in China for the next two episodes, so we'll be pulling out some interesting interviews from the AAAS annual meeting. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, many other places, or you can listen on the science website. There you'll also find links to the research and news discussed in the episode. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. To place an ad on the podcast, contact midroll.com. This show was produced by Sarah Crespi and Megan Cantwell and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.